0: This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So at The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's word. And we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. That's Jake. That's Ryan. That's Matt. Guys, we're digging into Nehemiah 9. And there is a lot here. There is a ton uh, in Nehemiah nine that I think is very, very important. Um, I, one interesting thing it said, you know, now on the twenty fourth day uh, of this month, they're they're thinking this is October of four forty four BC. So this is twenty five hundred years ago. So one thing I just want to kind of put in your minds as we're going through Nehemiah, the rest of Nehemiah, but also the stuff that we've gone over before. Think about how similar these people acted 2,500 years ago to how you act today. Think about how similarly they think about certain situations. Uh, it's almost as if there's a wiring in humanity to act in a certain way, regardless of the types of clothes or technology that we have. But there, there's so many good things here that, that we're working into. But, uh, as we were discussing this off air, Ryan, you were talking about just the importance of, of, for you in verse two. So how about you read verses one and two, and then uh, we'll launch into what you were thinking about that.
1: Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So what I, what I love about this verse is if we just go back to the verse we talked about last week in chapter eight, I mean, that was a, a revival. There was a revival going on in Jerusalem. They were reading the law of God and they were coming to terms with how they separated themselves from that. And so when a true revival happens, I believe, and I believe the Bible states that in the end there's going to be repentance. There's going to be something that's going to bring you back. When you're re- when you're having a revival on who you are um, as you meet Christ and as you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a repentance that's coming along. There's a change of mind. Um, and these people were changing their minds on how they acted during, um, and what their fathers did to break the covenant with, with God's people. And so
0: there was a repentance coming from that revival. So you said true revival. So I'm getting the sense uh, that there might be an example here. I am leading you on, leading you on. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you want to talk about Asbury? Are you going to take yeah. the oh, um, oh, I didn't even, I wasn't Asbury even revival. About Asbury. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's that? I, what
1: yeah. It's thing? a college <laughs> uh um, that
0: that schedules their revivals, but that go schedules ahead.
1: them yeah i hate I hate to go after revivals, you know because you don't know what's going to happen at the end of them, um but a lot of the stuff that was seeping out from that revival uh the people that were going to it um it just i didn't feel i didn't see any repentance from it i didn't see people repenting and changing from the cultural aspects and narratives of the actual world that they're living in against god's covenant and um it's just, I think that's something that we need to look at. If people are claiming revival and saying that certain things are revival, we need to look and see what repentance, why was there a revival? There's a revival. There needs to be a change. And what, what is that change? And I don't think we've seen that change. It's been what, a
0: couple of months now, maybe a year? Well, well before, before we hop <laughs> in, because I know, Matt and Jake, you have thoughts on this. I think all of us would acknowledge that we fervently were hoping that what happened in Asbury was legitimate. Oh yeah. That it was a real revival. And I think that there is certainly evidence that people came to Christ Mm -hmm. because of that revival, members of that, that school and people that just came to visit, that it it caused people to turn towards the scriptures in a way that maybe they hadn't done before because they wanted it to be true. So I think all of us share a healthy skepticism of most things because we're so uh, focused on capital T truth, but at the same time. I think we, that's kind of how I was talking about on the show. Like I was cautiously optimistic. I was like, I hope so. But yeah. then it was like, whenever they're like, Oh, the, the revival is becoming too much of a burden on the city. So we're going to move the revival off site. And also if the first 500 people get Chick-fil-A sandwiches, it's like, I don't know mm-hmm. that you yeah. need to do that. If there's a real move of God happening, uh, I just don't know that we're going to have logistical concerns that you know, are going to take over God. But I just and wanted to say that before then we continue to the come. If it's a
1: real revival in you know, people are showing up, they're showing up with reverence. They're not taking selfies and saying, Hey, I'm at the revival, you know, uh, (laughs) which you were seeing a lot on Twitter. Um, And so it's just, I, I, again, I agree with you. I I hope good came out of it. I'm I'm sure some good things came out of it, but I mean, this
2: is what a biblical revival looks like. I think when you start talking any revival, it it requires repentance. It really does. I mean, now And I look at this situation in Nehemiah. Okay, who's here? These are the people who have come back from exile. Okay? It was not, I mean, they're a sinful people, but it was not their sin that got them into exile. It was their fathers, their grandfathers. It was all their forefathers that basically sent them to Babylon. And now they're back. And they're here repenting, not just for their own sin, but for the sin of the third and fourth generation above them. And I think that, you know, I, I, I read Jocko Willink's Extreme Ownership. I don't know if anybody has read that book, but the concept here applies. There is failure. Whatever lays at my feet, I am accountable for it. It doesn't, there's no exceptions here. It's like, well, I did this, but you know, uh, Matt, Matt's the one that took me there and, and, and which, which is probably true in most cases, but (laughs) Matt's the one that took me there. But, you know, so I wouldn't even have gone if it wasn't for Matt, you know, it's like, no, I'm responsible for my action, what I've done, what my family's done. You know, I'm leader of a home. I'm the male in the home. I am a leader. If my child does something, if my wife does something, I'm just as responsible for that because I have not modeled obviously a leader behavior. So there with repentance, I mean that's ownership. It's like you have to fa- you're you're going to fail, you're gonna fall short, but repentance requires ownership. We get what we deserve. Amen.
3: And that's I mean that is so true and it, unless you're in Christ, and then you're not getting what you deserve because you are in Christ. But uh yeah, I think There's a danger in just tossing something aside and just, you know, going so hard on on the revival that happened at Asbury or the the proclaimed um, revival and just to say, oh, it's that's not anything. We serve a God that could use something like that and have it all be for show, but one person comes to Christ and that be to His glory. So there is a danger in us just tossing it to the side, but I think also we are called to discern Mm -hmm. and we should be able to judge that by the fruits of the things that come out. Was there repentance? And I would agree. It doesn't, didn't look like there was a ton of, I cannot believe how sin fly in. There wasn't a lot of repentance there. And it did seem more of a, Hey, look at me. Um, we don't, I wasn't there. I don't think any of us were (laughs) there, so I don't think we can fully understand that. But yeah, I, I back to this, like that's clearly, a revival, and as we're about to see, like they're gonna confess. I mean, they're gonna spend a quarter of the day confessing their sins,
1: <laughs> and then talking about God's graciousness yeah. and patience with them and everything. And so, I think I'm, I think that's just something that we need to look at and when when we're talking about a revival. Is you know what is what is this revival going to lead to? We can't judge it based upon what it is at that moment. We can judge it later on on what it's done. Yeah. So I think that's For one sure. thing
2: that we have to look at. Even so, in the case of the Asbury revival, even in maybe its imperfection, God still used it, and I think that's also a key point. God's—he can use anything. Okay, things that came out with the best of intentions. You know, like I said, I don't think I would—I don't think I would be in a camp where I would say, "Well, Asbury's—you know—it was not a good thing. It—it may not be the revival that we're looking for." But it was probably overall in that positive. God was able to use that to actually bring more people to him, hopefully spurs that into further diving into the word. And and maybe maybe the person that actually went to Asbury is the one that's going to actually start the real revival. So there's no real telling in terms of how things are going to work out. But ultimately, I think that having that faith that whatever is, you know, like what, uh, I can't remember the, I'm just hanging on the table. Well, I can't remember, (laughs) I can't remember what the name of the Pharisee was, but when he talked about uh, whether they should kill Peter and Paul, he said, if I kill them, you can kill them. Uh, But if you don't kill them and they continue down this road, if it is, uh, if you kill them, then you are killing something that God wants. But if you let them live and they continue to preach and it dies out, if it's not of God, it won't continue. So, I think in, in the case of the Asbury revival, if it's not going to die out, if there's something that grows and blossoms from that, then you probably have something that was of God in the first place.
3: You see some of that mirrored in, in David's story. Two times he has Saul delivered to him, but he just he's so reverent of God's anointed that he refuses to strike down Saul because he is anointed. Well, who am I is basically his attitude. Who am I to kill this person who's been... Anointed by God, God God will bring him to
1: an end, Mm -hmm. the way He wants to do that. I think it's kind of funny to look at because we look at let's look at Joel Steen, let's look at Andy Stanley. Like they're still out there doing their thing, and who who knows how many people they are actually leading to Christ. But when do we when do we say, hey, this isn't this isn't right? This is I
3: I think I think you can call out false teaching, but our weapon is the word of God and we are to call out wrong teaching and to correct in love and truth. The Holy spirit's the one that's going to move and the wrath of God is being poured out on the ungodly. And I have nothing to do with that. So Uh who put whatever person you want in, in that box who is a false teacher Romans talks about God giving people up to their sin and the wrath of God being poured out right now. And he's giving those people up our job is to say, "Hey, that's not right." Am I to go to Joel Osteen and say you're not preaching correctly? No. I think there are people who are called to do that, other pastors. But if if I know someone that that is I love Joel Osteen. Can I rebuke that in a loving way? 100%. But I'm going to do that with the word of God.
1: And I'm very careful in doing that. Sure. You know, it's especially if they're a new Christian, um, is like one thing I've had to learn from my cage stage Calvinist days, you know, um, being a Theo bro you know, um, it's like, man, you can't just go at people. You can't just be like rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. It's just you like, get rebuke, right, man. you get a rebuke. Yeah. What do you like about Joel's name? Yeah. You know, like, let me know. And then like, you know, I have some family members that listen to people. I probably wouldn't want to listen to and but I, I listen to them. I'm like, tell me more about that. Well, there's some good things here, Might I want to think about those things there. And so I think that's where it's like, Hey, we've got this platform, you know, we're sitting here talking and there's, we're always going to joke about those pastors, but it's just like there's people actually out there that believe them, and we can't just say, "Well, they're not saved," because we don't know that they have salvation. We just, I, I never want to judge somebody on their salvation. Period. Ever. No matter who they came who who they say they got it from, I want to help grow that salvation. Sure.
3: Who's the Who's the best preacher in the entire United States? It doesn't matter who you name; just name somebody. There are people that aren't saved in their church. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're sitting under right preaching. And sound doctrine. So you're right. We can't, we can't judge anybody on their
2: salvation. Rebuking people. And and when you go, going to your point, Ryan, rebuking people is a challenging thing and can go horribly wrong. If you are not well prepared. um, I would encourage, if that is something that you're facing right now, I would encourage that you read the book Tactics by Gregory Kugel. That's another <laughs> book on the, on, the list. on the list. So I have not looked at that list. <laughs> Apparently I need to. Um, but You've but, already read half the books, I, it seems. I, <laughs> but it's an I mean, it is such a helpful book because it takes, it, it approaches things with a questioning mind. Uh, you know, I'm an auditor and I tell my staff all the time, like, you should be asking five whys. If the truth cannot hold up to a sixth why, like if they can't, if, if they or they, they will not be able to explain it within five. If they, if it falls apart within five, that it's not true. Uh, so keep asking why on these certain things. Like, well, why do you like this preacher? Well, why is that an important message for you? Well, why did you get in that situation in the first place? Like, What's what's led you there? It, as long as you can can continue in a inquisitive mode, you know it's. I like what my dad used to. T- my dad told me all the uh, all growing up because people don't like being told what to do; they like to be able to figure it out on their own.
3: Yeah, and also kind of, that book helps kind of frame where your right place in the story is yes. because he's very clear on <laughs> most of us are not harvesters we are gardeners in God's garden mm-hmm. and planting a seed or tending to the garden. the Holy spirit is going to do the work. It's not our job to bring you out of sin and into the body of Christ. The Holy spirit will do that. But if I can ask you questions and most of the time people that, that believe wrong things will unravel their arguments themselves. If asked enough questions, mm-hmm. right. And then that can start the conversation, but statements end conversations, questions, start them. So in a sense, like on a platform like this, yes, we can say Kenneth Copeland, false teacher, he he teaches a false gospel. Hmm. But talking to somebody, that that relational conversation is gonna go a lot further than Rebuke. You're going to hell. Right. One yeah.
0: well, uh the one thing <laughs> that I mean, if anybody that can you. remember anything <laughs> from uh from Greg Cochel's book Tactics is they remember, you know, just put a rock in their shoe yeah. and it's like yeah it's you don't have to hit a grand slam every time you come up to the plate you don't even have to get on base every time but it's like you you have to honor yourself but that that not honor yourself but you have to honor what truth is you have to honor god and the way you're asking questions and that's why when i train people to engage pro-abortion arguments i give them questions to ask people back so yeah. you know like they say you know my body my choice well here are some questions that you can ask back to them to that will help if they're being intellectually honest reveal some of their nonsense ideologies but also it's going to kind of put them on their heels Cause so many times we, we allow ourselves to be put on our heels and we get on the defensive and it's like, no, you need to be more offensive in your approach, but it really comes, comes down to, uh, are the, are these things right? Are they true? And we, we see that as we continue on in Nehemiah 9, And again, guys, there's so many things that we can go over here, but Matt, you and I were talking a little bit off air about verses verse 13. So how about you, you read verse 13 and then kind of launch into why that one stood out to you. Okay. You came down on Mount Sinai. And
3: spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And so, uh, the, the reason that stood out to me is, I think we're we're literally watching God unfold the sanctification of His people. So we've come back to we've been called back to Jerusalem. We've we've uh, dived into the Word. And we, we are seeking to understand the word. And now there is a confession of sin. And so we are, we are literally seeing the sanctification of God's people carried out. And they're seeing why. Why did you give us these things? It's for our good. And it's so we know how to live. And we know how if we love you, we will obey your commandments. And it is an in, it's an invitation as much as it is a warning to seek holiness, be holy because I am holy is an invitation from God not to be perfect, but to seek that holiness. And that's, that's what, that's what these rules and laws and statutes were put into place. Like I want you to be holy as I am holy. And so that, that was, that's what stood out to me. There was the the sanctification process, which is a process for all of us. Some it happens quicker or different times for other people. So. Love to hear y'all, y'all's thoughts on that as well.
1: Thinking back to that catechism, just trying to remember it and going over it with my kids. Um, oh man, it, but uh, it goes back to obeying God's commands and laws. I can't think of the uh, question to, to begin with it, but uh, I think that, you know, what he gave us is beautiful. You know, and I, I think that we miss that fact because we're so scared of it. We're so scared that this points out our depravity, and we want to think of ourselves as good, and so we want to push it away. And it's just I, I don't know. I'm still I'm still like just sitting on that verse right now, well, <laughs> just I, like
2: just listen like the beauty of it. Yeah. You know, so you know, raised in the Catholic Church, we obviously have a lot of a lot of rules and. A lot of of things that we have to follow, Um, you know, and and I have this discussion with my wife all the time, you know, it's like, okay, I've come around, you know, I've learned a lot, but, you know, the idea of confession, okay, like, go to a priest and you confess your sins, okay, do I need that? Do I need to confess them to the priest in order to be healed, deemed, sanctified so that I can go to heaven? No. I Don't. Uh, it took me a long time to get there. But what have I learned? Well, at the same time, there is nothing that has ever felt more healing than actually confessing those sins to another person, which we're called to do biblically. You know, like confess your sins to one another. We're called to do that biblically. Uh, I think it's real easy. You can see how so many churches can fall into orthodoxy so easily and start creating these rules and structures and this is what our theology says. And there really isn't an our theology statement that should exist biblically because there should just be one. So I think when you start talking about why are these people who are, you know, when, when Ezra is talking to them and preaching, why are they so interested in what he's hearing? Well, it's because everything that Ezra is teaching, it's, True to the tradition in which it is being derived, it's all from God, and you know that to the point of you know discernment. I know this is of God because I know the Word, and I'm following what He's saying. So as we're preaching this, it's like no, absolutely. But then when you start, you know, then you start seeing just like the Pharisees, they started piling on little extra things here and there. It's like well, you can't, you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Yes, absolutely. But you can't you can't walk on the Sabbath more than a certain amount of feet. Okay, where's that from? What's that from? You know, where does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't. So that truth to orthodoxy and, and making sure that you have that discernment to know that you're following Scripture. You know, I I said in a previous podcast that you know the, the judgment and there's don't judge people. You know, the, that big thing, the big argument against Christians is well, you shouldn't be judging other people. <laughs> And this whole idea, this whole idea that, you know, you don't have the ability to have the discernment to know what is true and what is not. If you have decided that certain things are okay societally, if you've decided to take the rules of the world and say, nope, you know what? I think this is okay. This thing, the Bible's wrong about this. Okay, I'm gonna tell you it's not. My truth is here. And it's 100% laid bare. And if I'm doing something inconsistent with this, you are more than welcome to call me on it. I'm happy, to, I'm happy to deal with that myself. But at the same time, you're creating theology whole cloth. You've decided, no, the Bible doesn't go far enough or it's not true. And I'm going to add addendums, footnotes, whatever I need to do so that that's real religion now.
0: Because we live in an era of my truth. That's right. Like this is my truth and we don't, it's a, it's a derivative of just oh, an overall postmodern ideology to where it's like, okay, if you make a true statement over me or over this situation, you're somehow in the wrong and you might actually be an evil bigot as well. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, jury's still out on that. And so I think that that's part of the problem is, you know, we look at this and it's talking about how he gave them right rules and true laws. Like, can you imagine someone talking about, like, just even look at it in a political context, like modern politics. Imagine someone saying, this is a right rule. This is a true law. People would be like, like whoever is on the opposite side of where that person sits, they're going to lose their mind. Yeah. How, how You haven't cornered the market on truth and rightness and blah, blah, blah. And so it's like, what is the foundation from which you are, you are presenting this law or advocating for it? and uh, i forget the the quote uh, maybe mugridge or someone but it's like how these people have their feet planted firmly in midair yeah and that's that's <laughs> the problem that most of these people have is they want to talk about how hey this is what you should do uh like this is how you should act this is what we should legislate but it's like okay based on what who are you appealing to wait a minute you think that we're highly evolved chimps that talk to each other that used to be stardust and it's just like i'm sorry you don't you don't get ought from is like you're going to have to help me with that mm. well i
3: think Ecclesiastes says that nothing new is under the sun and just as the Pharisees were worshiping the creation instead of the creator, because the Sabbath was a creation by God given to his people and they worshiped the Sabbath. You, you fast forward to now, people who are in their own truth, they're worshiping the creation and not the creator. So it, it all amounts basically to the same thing, right? Like we're, we're not worshiping God. And to your point, yeah, where does that come from? And right here in 13, like it's laid bare. Like he, it's in the Mosaic law. Like he gave that to us. Like we should strive to follow that. Even as modern day, New Testament Christians, the law
1: still is applicable to us, Right wouldn't this be considered like a covenant renewal? I mean, basically what they're doing is they're confessing of their sins. And now like we're going over the covenant again, we're going to go over the laws that, you know, God gave us because they're right and they're just, and they're beautiful. And so you say that when you're seeing these people as old Testament before Christ coming to that realization, you know, it's like you said, it's like, you've got to even though we're in a new creation, we're in a new covenant. We still have to go back and look at the beauty of what this was.
3: If you love me, obey my <laughs> commandments. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jesus.
1: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Like,
3: um, also, here is another thing. And how can you, you obey them if you don't know if them? If you don't thing, exactly, yeah. exactly, <laughs> sanctification is for God's people. And I think back to some some things we were talking about. How to talk to people? Like there are different speed limits and different lanes for different people. Like if I see. Winkler in sin. <laughs> I am going to have a different conversation with you than I am somebody that I don't know very well because there are different speed limits. Mm-hmm. And if you are a brother in Christ, it is, I am duty bound to love you enough to say, Hey, you are in sin. Yeah. I'm calling you out on that.
2: It, that's a hard thing to, I mean, if you think about, I've had this conversation before. Okay. How, how willing are we to share the gospel with people that we don't have a close relationship with? Like think about, I can invite someone to church. You know, it's like, oh, I work with them. They're like, yeah, I just moved here. And you know, I had this great church back home. Well, come to my church. It's that simple. Okay. The casual acquaintance that you've met and it's, it's easy to kind of talk to them and try and Bring them into faith and maybe talk about some of those things. Then talk about having those conversations with your father or your brother or your sister or your wife when maybe they are not in the same spiritual headspace as you are and how much more difficult that is. And yet we purport to love them. We say, I love this person. And yet you are not willing to ensure that through your testimony and through and through God's saving grace that they spend forever with you. Mm. Like how much do you how much we've, do you love them? We've
3: talked about this on this podcast before, but it bears repeating Pen and Teller is it Penn who's the atheist? Mm-hmm. Yes. And he like I don't know how many times we've quoted an atheist on this podcast, but he he said something that really is convicting and it should be convicting for all Christians. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? If you believe that eternity is at stake and your eternal salvation is the most important thing, how much do you have to hate somebody to not preach that to them?
0: Yeah. He says, I sucked up the quote, um, that he basically doesn't respect Christians that aren't evangelicals. Yeah. Because it's like, why? like, you, that's, that's a special, oh yeah, here it is. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that?
2: Yeah. I doffed my cap to you, Matt Grassmeyer.
0: <laughs> yeah. But like, dude, that's, that that's so legit. Cause I, I met Pendulet, uh before and like, he's, he's a super nice guy, but he's like a militant atheist about it. But like, man, that, that's a that's a gospel call right there for people that even when it's awkward those are things that that you need to share with other people so that's that that's a that's a really good point in terms of how we should how we should be in reference to other people and how that how we should you know comport ourselves in those types of situations um well, one thing that i wanted to talk about as well within this chapter of Nehemiah is Uh, The section of verse 16 through 21, this is kind of like, you know, a rehashing of how stupid the Israelites were. And it's like, okay, no matter how stupid they acted, God provided. God was patient and God was merciful. And, you know, if you're one of those people that read yourself into the Bible, you're going to read that and be like, (laughs) I'm not that patient and I'm not that merciful. But specifically, uh, I keyed in on verse 21, 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So they lacked nothing. That reminded me of Psalm 3410. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Um, that's kind of like a, a, a direction verse for Undaunted. But then also Psalm 23, one: the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And um, that, that's, that's a big deal for, for a lot of us because we live everyone at this table and everyone in this community lives in relative opulence compared to the rest of the globe. Okay? Because even the people in our community that would be considered poor, they're not, they're poor by by Oklahoma standards, they're poor by American standards, maybe, but in terms of world standards, it's a a level of opulence that people uh, in other places around the globe couldn't even possibly fathom. And yet, we are constantly thinking about the things that we don't have. Well, I'll, 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 I won't say we, I'll say me. I'm constantly thinking about the things that I don't have, the boxes that I don't have checked because the funds aren't available or the, the security I have not been able to create myself and the insulation I have not been able to create for myself because I haven't done this or accomplished that or, or made it to this level or something like that. And I know a lot of people are like that as well. But you look at how God deals with the people that, you know, his, his chosen people, with the Israelites, how God de- dealt with them. He was patient and merciful, but he was also provisionary. He provided for them to where they didn't need anything. And I remember when someone was talking about on the days where they would uh, gather extra manna, you know, so they would have some left over for the next day. God wouldn't provide as much manna. Like, the, like they, they would have to, like, learn, like, no, no, you're going to have to rely on me every day don't save up for tomorrow or for later on this week just in case I don't provide. (laughs) You just need to have faith and watch me provide. And so that was just something I keyed in on is they lacked nothing because, I mean, that attaches to other things that we see in the Old Testament as well.
2: That makes me really uncomfortable. uh, That statement, the the CPA and me and the retirement planner, I'm over here going, man, this makes me uncomfortable. But it's so true. Like we, we do try and save up our treasures here knowing that well that way I have I have made I have made provision for my future. And you have no clue. Yeah. <laughs> you right. have no clue. You have no clue what God has planned for you. You have no idea what's coming you you have no you have no idea what's coming next. You have no idea if you're going to live tomorrow. Mm. You just don't. And we save up treasures here on earth thinking that I have a plan. I have a plan. But how often is our plan actually aligned with what God wants? And this is also not me saying, please don't save money. Please save money. It's right. good. <laughs> please save money. Please have insurance. But,
3: well, that goes, that goes back to the, you know, the dichotomy of God is sovereign, but we have responsibility. The Nehemiah is just full of those truths. God's going to build the wall back up because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. Right. But Nehemiah had a role to play in that, and it required work. So, yeah, it, yes, God, God will sustain us. He fights our battles for us, but we are also called to do work.
1: And be good providers and use our provisions how we should use our provisions. Paul has some pretty harsh things to say for men who don't provide for their families. Yeah. So, I mean, God's always going to provide. It's nothing I've ever like kind of worried about. You know, there's certain things, you know, like I want to check the boxes, you know, but you know, God's going to have everything set out with what he wants to do through my life, through my wife's life, through my son's life, through anybody's life. And so may not be my plan. Sometimes I hope our plans align, but
0: that's not always the case. Indeed. When I think the, another corollary here for he, the word sustain sticks out as well. 40 years you sustain them in the wilderness. So some people, they're not looking to be sustained, they're looking to thrive. Mm. And the, there are times in your life where you are set up and supposed to thrive. And then there are other times in your life where you're just, you need to sustain. And this could be with anything. It could be with your, your athleticism, or it could be with your job, or it could be with your family. Like there are times where it's just like God's maybe intentionally trying to slow you down a little bit because he's trying to show you something else. Like, as you know, again, this is months down the road by the time y'all are hearing (laughs) this, but like right now I'm in between vocal cord surgeries and it's like every now and then I'll get them, you know, I get a lot of encouraging messages, you know, online and DMS and stuff like that. But every now and then it's like, man, I can't wait for you to realize what God's doing to you right now. Like no one knows exactly what's happening right now, but there's a reason why you can't use your voice the way you want to right now. Like. I, it's not just an accident and like there are things in your life and I hate being like the cookie cutter, like, Oh God's going to use it. Don't worry. Because it's like when you're in the middle of it, you're worried, man. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's all you can worry about. And you know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, what is that? It's in Mark, uh, Mark nine where it's like, I believe help my unbelief. Man, I struggle with that. And I've heard that, that explained by pastors and sermons for years. And it still doesn't make sense to me. It's yeah. kind of the same thing. Like I always, uh, I always relate to the older brother and the prodigal son story. Like I'm like, <laughs> screw that stupid yeah. little kid. like let him lose the an And like, and so I kind of have to fight that, but that's one thing to where it's like, you know, that now's just time for sustenance. Let me sustain you in this moment. I'm setting you up for something else. And that's not me being self-aggrandizing. Like, oh, I, I am so special guys that God decided to allow Satan to attack my voice so that I'd have to take a few months of doing things more slowly. But it's like, We all have those moments, micro or macro, where it's like we're being sustained for something else later where we're going to have to be able to run a whole lot faster.
1: And it's also you putting your faith in. I'm not saying your faith's not there. It's just like, I think we all want to see your voice get better and you be happy when you talk and not come to church and just sit there quietly. Angrily. quietly Angrily and quietly, it's like, oh man, I don't know if they got in a fight or he just can't talk today. So (laughs) it's usually both. Um, (laughs) But but the thing is, is like you know, putting you know your your faith is there, but in God's timing, God God will prevail. You know, and we just don't know when that timing is. But I,
3: I think all of this has to be put in light of eternity. Yeah. And you talk about Kyle's voice. You talk about. Cancer, you talk about whatever the, the drug addict, the, dr- the drug addict who is a successful businessman but is snorting lines of cocaine. That's nobody here, just so everybody knows. Um, sometimes God takes away everything and he ends up in a gutter. He lost his wife, he lost his job, he lost everything. But if you look at that in light of salvation, if he comes on the other side clothed in Christ's righteousness, I'll take that every day. Mm-hmm. Well, and when, sometimes healing isn't on this side of eternity.
2: Yeah. So I think, I think when you st- when you spend time in prayer, and you know these big decision these big decision points come. I know whenever I took you know the the step of leaving my previous firm and and coming to this new one and becoming a partner, somebody just was just like, man, it's 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 so great. Like you know, I can't you know, it's gonna what a great opportunity for you. You're you know whatever. And I remember them kind of just saying like, you know, hey, see how God's plan works out. It's like, oh, I don't know how this is going to end. I have no idea how this is going to end. I said either one of two things is going to happen. I said either I am going to build something special for his kingdom, which is my fervent hope. Okay, I I spend time in prayer and asking for that every day. Help me build something great for your kingdom. But on the flip side of that, I want your will to be done. So if that means I need to fall completely on my face, and humble myself to the point that I have nowhere to turn but you, because I have not put you in that space where you belong, that's what I want. Like, humble me to that level. So if that means I have abject failure, you know, mud on my face, no one's talking to me, I can turn nowhere, true, true embarrassment, humble me in that way if that's what I need. And that's hard.
0: What a bold prayer. Ooh. That's a scary one. It is yeah, a, scary a scary one. Per- well, well, I'll actually let you, you talk about it yeah. because I think it relates to uh, verse 29 when we were talking before we started recording. There's, there's a corollary with what you were just talking about and what we see here in verse 29. So how about you read that and then flow sure. on.
2: Sure. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. But sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck. And would not obey. So, every time, you know, I have this this never-ending debate with especially a lot of non-Christians. Loving God, how would he send you to hell, right? How could he send you to hell? How do bad things happen to good people? Number one, we're not good. (laughs) There was only one good person who ever lived on this earth, and he was crucified. Just one. So, the idea here is you, if, you have decided, if you have decided that a certain sin is okay, if you've bargained in this way and created this whole cloth theology, if you've decided to go that route, God will let you. He will give you over to it. Uh, I just finished The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Fantastic book. And it's literally, uh, you look at the Rich Man and Lazarus parable, where Lazarus is, is up in heaven with an angel, and he's looking down, and his master, who he served, is descending into hell, and he's not repentant. He's not asking for forgiveness. He's not craving God in that moment. He is craving Lazarus to come down and serve him as if he is entitled to it. To me, the entire book of The Great Divorce C.S. Lewis is essentially a parable. It's, it's, they're all allegories to that single story, that parable that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. And so I look at it as how much can you actually decide I am giving this over to God. I am going to repent. He already knows what you're dealing with and you, yet we cling to it. It's like, I'm going to hide this away. I know, you know, you'll pray for, for you, you know, I know that You know, people who struggle with pornography, okay? You soften the prayer. You'll soften the prayer. It's like, well, I'm just, forgive me for my lust. It's like, no, confess what you did. Confess what you did. Confess what you're doing. Like, you need to take accountability for it because one day when you die and you are in heaven, if you have compromised to this point, God will not cast you into hell necessarily. What God will do is say, if this is what you want, I'm going to give it to you. So I look at, again, there's a whole bunch of stories in the C.S. Lewis book, and some of them are super convicting uh, because there's things that you just uh, love as a possession, as a material possession, as opposed to a Christ like love for those you love, uh, or the performative grief and performative sacrifice that you're doing. It's like it's not, your heart's not in the right place, but. I'm acting out in theater almost like, look how, you know, it's performative martyrdom. Look how much I'm giving to you, you know, um, trying to basically make others feel guilty. I think that it's a really great book. And I like Terry Fakes always says, don't, don't let CS Lewis be your theology, but he can definitely inform it. <laughs> but good it is good advice. But at the same time, like I said, it, it is a very good informative book as to, how sin can actually impact you in eternity, not necessarily just on earth. Man, those, that's a powerful
3: Jesus talks about that. Lord, Lord, we did all of these things. We prophesied in your name. And he says, I never knew you.
1: Yeah, Yeah. man. Mm. What about the uh, rich young ruler who fulfilled everything and said, fine, give everything that you have and come follow me. And he's like, can't do it.
3: Yeah. He walked away. He said, no, no, thanks.
2: We found out what but he truly loved wow. more. Yeah. The married couple who said, "I gave everything, I sold everything, and you've got it all." Yep. No, you don't. Peter. Yep. Peter called about. Yep. Ananias and Sapphira. That's right. Mm-hmm.
1: Acts. Oh, yeah. I, did I get it right? You did, Joby. You did. Oh, you heard
0: that? <laughs> Watch oh, out, Joby. <laughs> <laughs> we're starting to get smart over here. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got my mojo back, Joby. Oh man. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, at the end of verse twenty nine as well. Um, they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. So it's not just that. I mean, those, those are choices, Mm -hmm. right? They, they chose not to do those things. And when we choose to sin, we don't look at ourselves as a stubborn child. Like we don't look at ourselves as like the seven year old that just will not do it. Why? Because words like they just, (laughs) they can't like, they can't give you an argument as to why they're not going to do it. They're just not going to do it. And there's not anything that you can do about it. And so I just wonder whenever I look at God, because I mean, earlier in Nehemiah nine, it's just like, and God was patient and God was patient and God was patient and God was patient, but his will is going to be done. His, uh, his ability to control circumstances and situations is beyond our understanding of circumstances and situations. Like we can't even fathom it. And so it's just interesting that when we do this stubborn stiffening of our, of our neck and with the stubborn shoulder that we turn to them, it's just like, we know what that's like as a parent. And so we don't, we look at our yeah. kids almost like sometimes it's comical. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's just like, you rotten. Yeah. You realize I could drown you in the bathtub, like, and you wouldn't be able to do anything. Sorry. I got a little morbid, but it's <laughs> yeah. like, but it's like, Talk about macabre. But, yeah. Yeah. but it's like, the, Whoa. but, but that, that's the thing is like, we yeah. look at it. Like we are in, so yeah. we are not in control. Like in, in any control that a kid has, it's an illusion when mm-hmm. by when compared to their parents. And it's the same thing for us and God. But the God J- the fact that God is patient is just it's such a
3: powerful thing to think about how much love he has for us. We're in Nehemiah, it's the old testament. I've been told by reliable sources, quote unquote, that there's two gods. There's a wrathful, vengeful God in the Old Testament, and then the God in the New Testament is all love. But this is Nehemiah, four hundred years before Christ, talking about in history how God has been patient and I think and God, Oh, sorry. Just God, God looks at his people and he looks at us and he is patient. And if you don't believe that just read Genesis, the just thing to do to Adam and Eve was to, you're gone. You sorry. disobeyed me. You're dead. And he said, no, not only will I not, will you not die today? The savior of the world where salvation will come, will come from your line. Yeah. Like you, God is patient.
2: I, I think, I like the old quote there are two great tragedies in this life one is not getting what you want and the other is getting it I like the idea here like the stiffening of the neck and we're not going to obey how often people will say well I'm going to follow my dream your dream may not be god's plan do not work against god pray ask him have him guide you the the the, the problem I think you know to my, to my story earlier I don't know what he's got planned for me. He's either going to humble me or let me build something great for his kingdom. Okay. I can't wait to see what it is and I will be grateful when it comes. But if God decides this is not what he wants me to do, I would be foolish to stiffen my neck and to say, no, I'm going to fight through you, God. That's impossible. That's just not going to happen because his plan is going to rule out and he's patient. So I can even sit here and go, you know what? I'm fighting through this. I'm going to move past it. And suddenly, I start seeing, hey, I'm making some headway. I'm making progress. Things are actually going to work out. And then pfft, the rug can get pulled right back, from, back out from under me. God's patient. I'll get, he'll get to his plan in time. At some point, you will turn back to him. You won't have a choice.
1: I think it's funny to look at if you, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. I feel like in society now we're seeing a lot of people identify in their sin nature Mm. and like, even in, even in Christendom, you know, it's like, you know, Oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a gay Christian or, um, you know, I'm an Enneagram uh, seven. I'm an Enneagram seven Christian (laughs) or, you know, something, something that's there's always blank and Christian. It's like, all right. So now we're just like talking about our sin, you know, like, you know, all right. Back in college, I was a masturbating porn addict Christian, you know, (laughs) like, no, we like we need to find our identity, not into our sin nature, but find our identity in Christ and find our identity in God and God's and God's holiness. And so I just feel like when we do that, we're stiffening our necks. We're saying like, Hey, this is me, but this is also me. But that if you notice, it's always at the tail end. Boy, and you're not like a Christian something. You're right. a blank Christian.
0: When well, we're doing it as qualifiers, and so yeah. I love what Vodi Bacham said whenever he was basically calling out pastors that talked about homosexuality, and he was like, "Well, you pastors, your your sermon dies a death of a thousand qualifications before you get to the point." They'll say things like, you know, we're talking about homosexuality today and I just don't want anyone to feel condemned today. And we have homosexuals here at this church and we love them and I have homosexual friends and I have homosexual families and, and we love them. We don't want them to feel condemned. And then everything they say after that, it's just like they're, it's like taking a little bit of the sting, a little bit of the sting, a little bit of the sting out of it. And so when we say I'm a gay Christian or I'm a uh, even put your race. I'm a black Christian. I'm a Latinx Christian. I'm a whatever that, that thing is. Or when when you're saying, and I, I said Enneagram, obviously saying that I'm a gay Christian is not in the same category as, you know, quoting your Enneagram score. But I've heard Christians because, you know, Christians have just been like wooed by the Enneagram, even though it has like pagan occultic, you know, origins, yeah. they've been completely wooed so. and romanced by it. And the problem is they'll say, oh, you know, I'd be better at that, but I'm an Enneagram eight. Well, did, and it's like, it's no, it no. becomes a
3: crutch. There is a danger on both sides of the ledger. We can give too much grace, but we can also give too much truth. That's why the whole gospel should be preached and not watered down on either side. But, um, I had a point and, uh, you were talking about Voddie What were you saying? Oh yeah. uh, Put, put any other, that, that goes to how we put levels on sin, like put any other sin. You know, I know a lot of people who are disrespectful to their parents or I know kid. a lot of people. He oh, made the point sure. about pedophiles. Imagine okay. doing it with well, pedophilia. He's yeah. like, yeah, hey,
0: I know a lot of pedophiles and I love pedophiles and I got pedophiles that okay. are in my family. Yeah, yeah, you're <laughs> like, right. was, like, it's re- like you wouldn't, people would yeah, be okay re- with yeah, that. Replace Where are that, they? they <laughs> <laughs> that, either,
3: that either sounds really silly talking about, I know a lot of gossipers or I know a lot of pedophiles. Yeah. It either sounds silly or you go, whoa.
2: Yeah. I, I've, I like to use the phrase things of God don't need an adjective. Yeah, Like truth doesn't need a, my truth justice doesn't need a social justice. Um, you know, Christian doesn't need an adjective. I mean, I don't need to know what you are. I need to know that. I mean, I want to know that you're a Christian and if you're not, I want to know how I can help you get there. That's it. And I think the, the idea that I need to identify as something else other than a Christ follower in any way, shape, fashion, or form if I am a Christian. Why? What's the point? And I think that's a question that you have to ask yourself.
3: It's the Jesus plus gospel. Jesus plus nothing. No. But it is the Jesus plus mindset. I
2: need nothing else. You know, like, if, if you were going to ask me, like, what's the one word that you would use to describe yourself? I would be a Christian. And I hope you would see that. That's it. There's nothing else I need to add to it because there's nothing that I could add to it that would make it any better than what it already is.
0: I think people want to sweeten it, though. Yeah. That's what when we were going through what we were going through first Timothy. It's like that's where the gospel plus thing comes from to where it's like, okay. The gospel is so sweet, but God, it's got to be, it's got to be sweeter than that. Again, another Vody Bauckham example. He was uh, talking about Uh, um, how he was walking his son through a strawberry field and his son was eating the strawberries. But then when they left the strawberry field, he started feeding his son, you know, things that were artificially sweetened to taste like strawberries. So strawberry pop tart, strawberry slushy, strawberry soda, and the son got so used to that that whenever he went back and had a strawberry, it, the strawberry didn't taste sweet anymore. Mm-hmm. And so he had been romanced and uh, basically consumed by the artificial sweetener, by the fake. That when he got to the real thing, it didn't seem sweet anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is when you try to add to the gospel, like what you're doing is you're you're not you're not adding. You're not adding anything to it. All you're doing is you're making a copy of a copy of a copy. And then eventually the picture will become such that you can't even recognize it.
2: Well, and I think there's also it's not just the add to the gospel. I think there's also the subtracting from it to sweeten yep. it up. You know? Sure. It we won't talk so
0: about this part because it's going to be too condemn condemning. Yeah, yeah.
2: But it's so easy. It is so, so easy because, you know, everybody's like, Well, my God oh, is I a God that. of love. My God's a God of love okay, uh, do not take the lion out of Judah, okay? Jesus, I mean, it's like, okay, I, I recognize that he's talking to the sinners and he's being very kind and very sweet, but look at how he's talking to the Pharisees. Jesus found some things unacceptable, and, and yet are we compromising? And I think that this is, it's so, it's so easy to just cherry pick You know, we used to, you know, in the Catholic fake, we we would call it cafeteria Catholics. It's like, I'll take some of this. And, oh, no, I don't want to eat my broccoli. You know, so, yes, the gospel message is very sweet, but there's some broccoli in there.
3: It's bitter. It can be bittersweet. It's, again, it's the best. (laughs) It's the best news and the worst news. Because
1: it makes you realize who you actually are. That facade is now taken down. And that is terrifying yeah, for nope, a lot of people. And, I'm my not Jesus, a good person. and My Jesus doesn't see me that way. Not well, my Jesus.
3: Yeah, when we, you know, when we, when you we know try to him. when we try to say that my my God, yeah. my Jesus loves me, what again, what standard, what definition of love are you using? Because if you're using the Bible's definition of love, then we gotta talk.
1: I think that's <laughs> the you, thing is we never we will never understand God's love and God's justice because we're human. Our brains can't even right. fathom what is true justice, sure. but we want to pretend like we do.
0: I, th- I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, the, I got into a dust up last year with a guy. I can't remember his name about his book. And he just kept talking about, well, when people hear about my Jesus and blah, 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 they're never turned off. And I was like, wait a minute. It was like, Ryan,
1: Ryan something. Yeah. yeah. And so it that was guy. like,
0: it was just kind of like, well, are, are you sure you're showing them Jesus then? Because Jesus made people so mad by the words that he said that they <laughs> yeah. pushed him out to like uh, the edge of a cliff <laughs> yeah. and you almost pushed him over. And then they, they eventually like they got him and they crucified him. And it's like, if the, if his words aren't, aren't biting to you, maybe you're not reading them. If not your God, Jesus, if your God is, if
3: your God is wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't, yeah. it's not your God. And I mean, he, he even talks here in Nehemiah nine um, where it talks about the golden calf. Yeah. They worship the golden calf as God. This is the God who brought us out of,
1: Egypt and fed us and fortified us and sustained us in the wilderness. Like
0: that's incorrect. (laughs) Well, even again, we live in an era where even saying incorrect or something like that uh, becomes an issue. And so again, that's all like, again, that's why I wanted to make the point at the beginning here or at the beginning of this episode, rather that this is 2,500 years ago. Mm. And it's like, we're, we're dealing with the same thing. We have the same attitudes and we have the same just propensity to want to add to things, to sprinkle things on top to make them better. But guys, or go ahead.
2: I was going to say one more point, going back to your point, Ryan, of yeah. the revival. How do you know this will be here? How do you know you're going to actually experience the revival that I think all of us are hoping comes? Is that so many of the structures, so many of the human rules and things that we have put up, we are finally going to look at them and go, man, did we mess up? We've made a huge mistake. Right. And I just want to go back to our golden
1: calf. Like you, you, like from 2,500 years, nothing's ever changed. And it's true. The only thing that changes is who our golden calf is. And right now in our society, it's ourselves. It's my truth. It's my, my, my. That is our golden calf. It's not God, God, God. It's me, me, me.
0: And imagine if the golden calf could tell everyone, hey, I need to be, I need to be worshiped and I need to be verified and I need to be, you know, held up in esteem because that's what we're doing now is like, mm-hmm. we're creating these identities for ourselves. And then we're demanding that the public tell us that we're justified in these feelings and that, you know, we should, you know, you should acquiesce to what I want. It's not even the public, it's the church now. Sure.
1: And that's like, you know, I hate getting on churches again, <laughs> but the church, the church is doing that. When we're building church towards people with that pragmatic approach rather than towards the worship of God, we're giving them that, feeling that it's about you. When and you I'm, let
3: when you let water in the boat and you keep letting water in the boat, to use Steve Lawson's analogy, eventually that boat is going to continue to sink until you're not in the boat anymore. You're just in the water.
0: And that's the problem for us is a lot of churches are working backwards. So they want to be in the water and to just be a part of the water when it's like... You were never called to be that. You were called to be salt and light. And if salt loses saltiness, it's no longer a preservative. It's basically worth nothing. And so uh, there's so much more that we could talk about with Nehemiah 9, but we're going to have to leave it there. But guys, make sure you come back next Sunday where we're going to dig into Nehemiah 10. So make sure you read up through Nehemiah 10 so you're prepared for next week. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link I've got for you there is a link to our donation page. Guys, the way that we're able to produce the content that we do is because we have guys that hop on board to support us on a monthly basis and I checked my email a second ago and we have a new monthly donor and it's Winkler (laughs) right across from me snuck that in and didn't tell anybody. You thought you were going to get away with that. I'm not going to let you away with that, but Hey guys, we're, it's not just you supporting. It's even people here at the forging table. So thank you so much for hopping on board. It's guys just like you that are helping us create this content for guys, just like you listening to this right now. We're trying to equip men all over the place to push back darkness, and we need your help to do that. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self title debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah